Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Grief and Rebirth Podcast, where we interview grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and people who have inspiring healing stories to share. I'm your host, Irene Weinberg. And before I begin today's interview, here's a reminder to please be sure to like Irene Weinberg, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'd like to begin today's interview by posing a question to each of you. Do you happen to know anyone who is stuck in the in-between place? that place between the life they had to leave behind after a tragic loss and the new life they have yet to experience. Our guest today is Brian Hartzman, who is a certified life reentry practitioner and a death doula. Brian can help a person leave that safe, comfortable, but inhibitory holding pattern, which is keeping a person both out of danger and out of life. After growing from his own grief following the loss of his wife, Brian began exploring and pursuing ways to support others who have also experienced loss. He provides counseling and coaching services both in person and remotely for individuals seeking to find a new footing in life following a life-altering change or loss. Brian also founded and is the leader of a widower's group in Seattle, where men can commune and socialize with other men like them who understand what they are experiencing in their world of loss. So by the way, everyone, you're listening to uh, Brian and Irene between Seattle and New Jersey today. Technology mm-hmm. is a pretty amazing thing. Indeed. Uh, indeed. Brian, welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast community. I can certainly you. relate. You're welcome. Thank you. I can certainly relate to your heartbreaking experience of losing your beloved wife as I'm a widow. This is certainly a club to which none of us ever wish to belong, but here we indeed are. So, Brian, to begin our conversation today, could you please share with us your own experience of loss and how it changed your perspective about life? Sure. It's uh, one of the things that I've gotten uh, a lot more, I I guess, um, comfortable with uh sharing over the years uh, i i remember when i first like my first year or so after my wife died and anytime i could even talk about it i get perked up um but i uh, yeah, so um my wife uh and i we were uh together for i uh i guess we were together for about five years uh before she died uh we were uh we'd been we were married and in october of 2012 went on um we, in January of 2012, we found a, a lump and went to a, or January 2013, found the lump, um, 
discovered it was an aggressive form of, ref, of breast cancer. And uh, two years later, she was gone. Um, oh she was 39 and I was, she was 36. I was 39 at oh. the time. And yeah, I, I had, uh, I thought I'd arrived. I thought I'd figured it all out. Um, had the rest of my life kind of ahead of me. And next thing I know, I'm just kind of standing here like, wow, this is like, what do I do now? The red, like my whole future just evaporated from in front of me. And, um, yeah, and I, I really, I, I struggled with, with that. I struggled with, um, yeah, every concept that I had of both what my life was and what my future was, um, had kind of just it became something that I felt very, um, angry and betrayed by. And as, long as, as I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, um, well, and then on, on top of that, um, I have uh, two kids from a previous marriage who uh, were, she was very much their parent. And so I, I just kind of found myself in this place of trying to demonstrate what I thought uh, healthy grieving was to them and to my, uh, to help them through it. And, um, but really it was all just uh, a show for even myself. Uh, and I was kind of unraveling uh, inside and, um, I know the one thing that got me to finally go to a support group was someone had said, uh, who's, who lost their dad or who lost their mom a few years earlier. Uh, their dad had said that while they had, uh, plenty of people to do things with, they really missed having someone to do nothing with. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And that, that hit me. It, it, like I felt that. And I finally was like, Oh, if I, if I can feel what, if I, if I can recognize what someone else is feeling, especially, and he really, someone else can say something that draws out what I'm feeling. I guess I, I really should go to support group and try to start working through that. Um, and I was working in, in IT at the time and um, completely unmotivated by everything in that world. And as I um, started working through my grief and I, I really found a lot of comfort um, in the concepts of, of presence and impermanence uh, and really uh, one of the authors I've read at the time, Pema Chodron, she, she says um, empathy is knowing your own darkness, but being able to sit in someone else's. Mm. And, uh, and I really, wow. That I found that that really resonated with me. And I, I think it was funny. My, my wife, uh, when we were together, she would always uh, get on me about not trying to fix things. Uh, sometimes she just wanted me to hear her and not 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 try to fix whatever uh, she was feeling, and I I didn't really get that until I really got comfortable with my grief and was able to be in someone else's grief because you realize you can't you can't fix it. Grief is not something that that you can fix or just get over, um, and that's what so many people struggle with. Well, especially people who aren't grieving but are trying to support someone who's grieving is that they, they always try to say the right thing or do the right thing, try to make it better. And, and that's what really alienates the people who are grieving is that you, you can't fix it. You just need to be able to sit there with it. Um, and once I got that, uh, I started being able to really support the people in my support group um, and really found that to kind of become my calling and, and presented me down, uh, got me going down this path into life reentering, grief coaching, and then ultimately now uh, doing death doula uh, work. It's amazing. And ultimately, this incredible, horrible loss you had, just like I can relate to it myself, 
opened the uh, doors to you you never knew existed into your real calling in life. I, yeah. I, I would bet you that your work in the group helped you to support your children better. Oh, sure. Also, because it gave you a whole different perspective and they weren't watching you soldier, soldiering through. If you could start to level with your grief, I would imagine that would help you to, to encourage them to do likewise. Yeah, the, um, one of the proudest moments that I've, I've kind of had over the past few years, um, about, I think about a year or two ago, my, my son, who's now 15, um, he, he said to me, he's like, you know, dad, before, but like, and we always, we, we tend to like before and after as kind of, you know, before death or before like that hit, hit all of us. Like he said, before he says, you're my dad. Um, he says, but now he's like, now you're my father. And, uh, and he, and he went on to explain that he, you know, he really, he felt, especially now in reflection that when I was, when he was younger and I was younger, I play, I, I played the role of what I thought a dad should be and should look like. Um, and since this is all, uh, fresh to all of us, I've now, I've become so much more authentic and genuine just with everything that I do in my life, uh, that, um, he, he and I, but, and both my kids, uh, um, uh, have a much more real, authentic relationship. And um, it makes me sad that we had to go through that death for us to be able to have that relationship. But um, I'm grateful for the uh, the growth that we've all had uh, out of that. Yeah, it turned into a blessing. Well, I often yeah. like to say, my son has said to me, Mom, there's been nothing worse than seeing you in despair and nothing better than seeing you be able to have joy again. So with what you're yeah. helping people with reentry and everything, and because I worked with a, a transition coach also after my husband died, that was really helpful to my relationship with my son also. And I role modeled a very healthy way of being after loss because we all have loss. Yeah. You know, so I can so relate to what you're doing, Brian. What inspires you to pursue the calling of a death doula? And how do you as a death doula assist the dying and family members? Um, well, after it, it was a very, um, uh, I, I almost want to say a, a linear type of path in my, in the growth of my, my empathy. Um, you know, first I was able to, I, I recognized early on with the, the, with the different widows and widowers in my group that, um, you really can't compare losses because what, what you experience is so unique to you that what someone else is feeling, you know, and, and especially with all of us, um, there are people like me who went through uh, a couple years of illness and watched our spouses kind of deteriorate before they died. And there were other people in the room who had sudden loss, like a car accident or a heart attack. Um, and they would look at me and say, Oh my God, I can't like what you went through must be so much worse than what I went through because you had to watch this person die before you. And, and my thought was the exact same thing. Like, Oh my God, I can't imagine coming home one day and being like, what do you mean they're not coming home? Um, and we realized you very quickly that it's, you, you literally can't compare that what one person is going through is so unique to them. And very often what someone else outside of you is experiencing seems to be so much worse because you, it's not what you've experienced. And that, as I started to, my, emphasize with other people uh in their grief then i started to it started to grow and i started to recognize well wow you know grief it's you know it's only it's whatever it's so personal so it's whatever it is 
um, particular to you. It's the biggest thing that has happened to you that has caused this grief. So someone's divorce versus death, you know, it's the biggest thing that's happened to them and it's, it's changed their future and their lives. And, and that's, and as I got more comfortable with that and sort of supporting people whose grief extends beyond that of um, losing a significant other, then uh, and my community uh, started to grow of people supporting uh, people going through trauma and, and emotions. Uh, I got tied in with the uh, death doula community out here. And as I, I was like, oh, wow, well, if I'm supporting people after they experience the loss, um, so much of what they go through is because they were not uh, prepared for how to how to anticipate that loss, how to anticipate what, it, what how to understand what was happening, and how to how to understand how to process the grief and go through it afterwards. What if I could work with them beforehand? And, and so so many of us who are widowed, we complain that people that we were completely unprepared for what we were about to go through, especially those of us you know who are in our twenties and thirties and forties. Um, when it's just you, so unexpected um, in your life at, at that point. And then, um, but then if we, and the people around us who don't understand uh, our grief. Uh, so as I started to think about and relating with those people, and then it naturally is with, with death doers, you work not only with the families who are, um, who are about in the process of potentially losing a, a family member, but also the, the person who is, nearing death uh, themselves and so it and the the death do you, so much- go to the, do you actually work with hospice or do you go to the to the to the person who's dying or you or the people who are dealing with it get in contact with you how does that work um well so it's the, the getting in contact with people is the that's kind of the um the tricky part that's where the community really comes into play because uh we're not death doers are uh they operate in between a lot of the other official fields. So, uh, you know, we're not trained as um, nurses or anything like that. So we cannot play the hospice roles, but very often um, establish relationships with people in the hospice field. Uh, Likewise, I've established relationships with people who do estate law um, because very often um, it's, and it goes either one way or the other. We're working with someone and recommend, you know, you need to, work on your estate or vice versa. Someone's working on their estate and it, it's approaching an end of a life for yourself or your family, such an emotional state that I hopefully estate lawyers will be able to um, include us in that. We actually, uh, the organization that I'm, I work with out here is associated also with hospitals in the area. Um, so almost kind of like in that sense, working with hospitals, it's, it's almost like, um, tied in more with the religious, uh, you know, do you, if you want to have a, a minister or a priest or um, a rabbi, uh, we kind of get involved with the social work aspect uh, there for, to help people. Cause it is, there's a spiritual aspect to it also. And it can be as a death doula, um, helping the person reconnect to their, their spiritual community that they perhaps have been um, distanced from and they're wanting to uh, reconnect with, with that to, resolve whatever feelings or emotions or guilt they might have as they're approaching the end of their life. Um, but then a lot of it is also uh, figuring out things like w- with your end of life care um, as you're, and as you're approaching that, that point, um, do you want to have hospice or do you, do you feel like you want to hang on as long as you can for your family, but what do you want to do for yourself? And start answering the questions that you personally may not even necessarily 
you want to look at. It sounds like you fill in a lot of blanks. Yes, a, a lot of blanks, a lot of the unknown unknowns. And, and there's so many things that, you know, myself, when uh, with my wife, I am, we, 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 I knew her, her, um, living will wishes. I, I knew that she didn't want to be kept alive, uh, unnecessarily. But beyond that, um, I, I, the only things I knew about her wishes for end of life were things that we'd talked about from attending funerals together and things like that. I kind of had to figure it out on my own in a hurry. Um, and with, with, with the feedback of family members who fortunately in my case were, were, were did not have strong opinions, uh, but I know plenty of people who have had to fight against family um, and determine what to do with uh, with their significant other, um, either as they approach. I know you know someone who had to fight with the family about taking them off of machine because the family, even though they knew the wishes, the family disagreed and they had to go to court to be able to take them off of mm-hmm. machines. Um, or likewise, whether you're going to bury or spread the ashes or um, all those things. If uh, a lot of things that people they don't think about one, one of the death duels that I work with uh, works a lot with tra- transgender people. And this one person, they, they, it was a, they were physically male, but identified as female. They wanted to be buried in a dress and the father was determined to not let that happen. And so he was able to, control to the end. <laughs> exactly. Um, and he was able to then, uh, you know, figure out, what they needed to do legally. And even though she wasn't a lawyer, she was able to bring in a lawyer who could help them figure that. But these were things that you don't necessarily always um, think about, or even uh, I know a number of the widows in my group, they got um, these glass balls with some of the ashes kind of um, it's called artful ashes. And they, they uh, mix the ashes in with colors and a glass sphere that you can kind of keep in your house. If you want to keep some of the ashes, I didn't even know that was a possibility. And so my wife's ashes are spread and now I've learned about this. I'm like, Oh, I wonder if I would have liked to have had that. I don't dwell on it because I can't, I, I can't go back and right. retrieve her, her ashes. But, um, it's, uh, it was, if I had a death doula, uh, or if we'd had a death doula, these were things that we could have understood, you know, and it, it goes into some of the, and death doula is also, uh, especially some, some of the organizations out here, they work with, green burials and sitting vigil and some of the more spiritual aspects as well. But really it's, it's working with a person and their family to not be afraid of what's coming. Um, and so not only the logistics of it, and I, I just spent a lot of time talking about the logistics, but also the emotional aspects of it. So, you know, if you're in the room with the family and the person passes while you're there, um, then, you know, for putting your hand on the, on them so that the family knows, it's that, you know, the, the person has, has died, but their body isn't scary. It's not, it's not this oogie thing. You can touch right. it, you can love them, you can caress them, you can, you know, and so leading by example and some of that, helping the family get through, because touch is such a important aspect of grief um, and being able to, so you can actually physically get it and understand, yes, this person is, they've died. And that's actually one of the other things where I'm still catching myself on is, um, using the word died instead of lost um, for, and past is kind of okay. But when you say, Oh, like I lost my wife, it implies that I did something wrong. And even though no one knows, no one actually believes that mentally, that's the connection that you're making. And so getting in the process of saying my wife died, you know, it's what happened to her. I didn't lose her. I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, it's not, 
something wrong with me. It's she's died. And so a lot of it is that emotional coaching uh, with people to get uh, as both the individuals who are dying as well as their family to make it a death positive experience. Right. That's, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, real, I mean, in a tragic situation, that's a, a yeah. wonderful aid to people. Um, let me ask you also, could you explain to our listeners what a life reentry coach actually is and how you provide a person with the supportive structure needed to begin shifting. And this is an interesting concept too, from a waiting room concept, a waiting room mindset to one of reentry. And did this life reentry work lead to your being a death doula? How did that happen in your life? Uh, yeah. So that's uh, exactly um, it. Uh, so I, when I was looking for ways to expand um, how I was supporting people and I, I um, someone had, one of one of the widows in my group had actually taken a seminar through the Life Reentry Institute, and I learned that they were training practitioners, and so I I jumped immediately um, into that. And the um, it's a it's a fascinating um, approach, and it really helped me to understand not my grief, uh, but then also understand other people's grief. And the the the, the concept behind the Life Reentry model is that when you Back in the, the cave days uh, when we were, um, you know, if you're down by a river and with your baby and a lion comes along, uh, you're, you enter fight or flight. It's something that we're all, we've all heard about the fight or flight mode. Your amygdala takes over, your prefrontal cortex shuts down, you take your baby and you run. Um, and then once you've entered a safe place, you, your amygdala, which controls your fight or flight responses, it shuts back down and you're and redirects your energy to your prefrontal cortex, which is where your logic and reasoning and, um, and then other parts of your brain where joy and happiness and things, it, it re-releases the ability for you to control those things. But when you're in fight or flight mode, joy, happiness, logic, reasoning, those things are not important is get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, in our modern society, especially with as, um, as emotional beings as we've become and, as, as attached as we can be to um, significant others or, or other things in our lives, when we have a traumatic loss like that, the prefrontal cortex takes over. It says, oh my gosh, this is scary. We need to, we need to be safe. But we don't, it, because there's no, like once we have this traumatic event, it doesn't go away. Our, our life is forever changed as a result of these traumatic events. So we don't get to go back to a safe place at which, and so our amygdala never really releases. And as a result, our prefrontal cortex doesn't, we, we logic doesn't start happening again. Uh, we, and our, some of our deeper, more emotions that they don't come out again, uh, cause the amygdala is still controlling where we are. And that keeps us stuck in what we call the waiting room. Because you're you're waiting for for safety to happen, you're waiting for you, your life to resume, but it never can because the aspect of your life that is that is lost now, well, it, it can never come back, and so you you end up being stuck in the in this room. Uh, for me, I always describe it as um, sitting in like kind of a a screening room, uh, you know, for a movie, and the um, the movie ends and the wheel. Uh, the movie, uh, the movie projector is still kind of rolling and flapping, but there's nothing on the screen and the walls are there. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, now what? Um, and so the life reentry approach, it, it recognizes that. And 
you know, anything can seem scary. Doing anything of any sort of significance uh, or insignificance is that, that would lead you towards this new life that um, you weren't planning on is, is scary to even venture out into. And so it's, let's figure out what are the smallest things that you can do to take a step into this new way, you know, so you can kind of peek out the door and see that the world out there isn't as scary as you think it is. And so, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, if, if you need to, your, your husband had a, a boat that they absolutely love, but you don't know how to boat. You don't ever want to take the boat out again because you're emotionally tied to it. Um, and this, and so you just stare at this boat all the time. Um, and you're paying for it and you're feeling stuck. What do I do with this? Well, uh, what do you do? Like, are you, do you think you could, are you ready to sell the boat? Well, yeah, I need to sell the boat. I, I can't afford it. Well, what's the, what's the first thing that you would do? Well, I'd go to a, a boat dealer. Is that really the first thing that you would do? The first thing you do is actually email them or call them. Uh, and you know, get an appointment is like, can, can you send an email? Well, yeah, I think I can send an email. And all of a sudden now you've done something for the thing that seems Im- impossible and scary to do. And now that makes the next thing a little bit less scary and the next thing a little bit less scary. So it's taking little bites of something that's really scary to start to demonstrate to your brain. You know what? This isn't as scary as I thought it was. And all of a sudden the neurons start remapping and releasing control so that other centers of your brain can start to uh, start taking back over again. And you can start to experience joy and do, do things that not only turns out aren't scary, but you can actually start to do things that you never even thought you would do before. Well, it's kind of, to enjoy life. No, I'm sorry. It kind of reminds me of the concept. If, for me, it feels like you're a person's kind of in quicksand. They just can't. Yeah. Whether they're in that boat or you know can't give up that boat, or they or they yeah. have a place they live with the person and they can't let go of that, or whatever that is, they're kind of in quicksand. They don't know where to go with it, and it's so scary. So someone like you is extending your hand and saying. Let me pull you out of here and show you your first step to get to moving on past this quicksand in yeah. your life. Would you say that's kind of appropriate? Yeah, very, very yeah. much so. It is. It's all about taking. And I had someone with with me. For me, it was a pile of clothes that my wife had, and sitting in the corner of my room on a chair. And I, because she couldn't find clothes that were comfortable and fit her. Um, and in her final weeks with all the steroid uh. and stuff from the chemo. And, and so I just, I couldn't even look at this chair. I wouldn't even touch it. And people come by like, Oh, hey, let me help you. No, don't even No, I can't, I can't even look at like, I, I just couldn't even think of it. And then finally someone said, well, just tell me the story. Um, and I bawled the story. And then all of a sudden like that weekend, I was able to start putting some of the clothes and, you know, sorting them for keep and, you know, give away. And, um, it still took me probably about a month to go through it, but it was that first scary thing that I couldn't even, you know, recognize. And I couldn't even see the clothes in my room until someone mentioned it to me. Um, so yeah, it is. It's, it's just someone who can help hold your hand to tackle some of these things that you feel like are way too scary to even think about. And then it helps show you, you know, and then it's, it's a structured way to kind of pull you along that, that road and kind of show you that, even though it's not the future you planned on, mm-hmm. it's not not only is it going to be okay, but chances are it could actually be pretty great. Wow. Ryan, how does the life reentry model bring about a shift from the heart to the brain? And what typically takes place when a person reenters life? As I was, was kind of starting to describe it, it is, it's, um, it, 
the, the life reentry approach, it, it helps you, um, your heart is like you're, you're in pain and you're, and you're, you don't want to go back to that, but you don't want to go back to the things or towards the things that scare you. Um, and, and so often even confronting what, what is painful and what, you know, what keeps you up. And so many people when they're in grief, uh, they avoid it. Uh, they're in a, a, a phase of avoidance where, you know, it's whether you stay up binging, you know, TV shows on Netflix yeah. all night, um, not leaving the house or, you know, ordering in instead of going out to go to the grocery store and actually make things. They just, they, they become in this um, survival state where they're, they're existing, they're living and uh, because their, their heart hurts too much. And so when you're able to start to encourage those, um, those shifts by taking little small steps into things that, you know, a little a teeny little step towards something that feels like it could be scary, you know, or even, you know, you hate the fact that you're constantly ordering food in, but you can't bring yourself to get out. Like, well, you know, instead of ordering food to eat, maybe order a blue apron uh, to get you. So you actually have to do something and, and start to open up those, uh, the neurological connections in your brain to the, the prefrontal cortex and the other, the, the emotional areas of your brain, the, the, it's, it gains momentum. Um, and, and then the, and the program and the, you know, as a, as a coach, it's to help you kind of keep that momentum because it's so easy to slip back into that safe place that is, um, catatonic. Absolutely. And so back someone who, who can yep. help, exactly. Someone who can help bring you, um, bring you along and, um, and, and then, you know, start to peek out of that waiting room and really see that you can go from surviving to thriving and, um, and that's kind of, and those are the, some of the, the words we use when you're in the waiting room, you're really just surviving, but, and you, and, and when you're working with someone, it starts to identify, you know, Hey, this is, you know, you did this today. That's your thriver, you know, engaging, you know, really helping them recognize and see, wow, well, I actually, I did do something. And, you know, because so often you, you'll downplay it and, and, and poo poo it. And so you can start, if you can start to recognize and, you know, through things of like journaling or, you know, having regular calls with somebody or, you know, um, but some way to demonstrate and show you evidence of your, of your success. And, and now I know, I know so many people who have uh, really thrived in areas of, of their lives. Like I know uh, one of my widow friends, um, she has uh, since bought an RV and has gone on RV trips, something that she never would have done before oh, once great. she got out of her, you know, surviving and started thriving, started to, well, what, what, what do I get? You know, what could I get enjoyment out of in this, in this new life? Uh, another one started a, a nonprofit for uh, autistic young adults. Um, like, you know, just different things that, you know, were important to you, things you thought about in, you know, in your previous life, but now that you've reentered this, this new life, this new way of being really the, you know, all bets are off and people have really started to, step into things that they never would have had the courage to even True. consider before. What an opening. Now I have to say that I want to thank you and we need to take a quick, quick break to allow a minute for our sponsors who keep this podcast free for our listeners. We'll be right back. We're back. Thanks for tuning in to my very special interview today with Brian Hartsman. Let's continue on with Brian with this question. Please tell us about the many layers of grief and the steps unique to each person for re-entering life 
a life where it is possible to love, dream, and thrive again, which we've kind of touched on some of that. Does this concept also apply to other losses, Brian, such as divorce or the loss of a job? Certainly, yeah. It's um, I know that when we talk about the layers of grief, I mean, it's especially in the modern uh, times, fortunately, we're starting to break out of um, pre-existing notions that we've we've had of it. And, you know, it, and initially, even before uh, the famous Cleveland Ross model, I mean, it was pretty much um, way back, uh, you know, before World War One, grief was largely it's very accepted among you know, most cultures and it was um, almost prescribed uh, in the cultures of how one was supposed to, um, to grieve. And you go through whether you fit Shiva in, in, in the uh, Jewish religion or in, in other religions, it's, you know, the, you know, wearing the black and um, you were, you know, having a year of mourning it was, everyone was encouraged to grieve. And then uh, one of the things I've, I've learned is after world war one, death on such a massive global scale, the narrative shifted and it was, you know, the thought of our, uh, of our, of those who have died and just, you know, buck up and carry on. And mm-hmm. the statues in the world shifted from statues of generals to after World War One, they were statues of soldiers. And it was glorifying and honoring um, the dead. But also, you, you know, when you lose your whole family or, you know, you can't, you, you can't sit there and grieve everybody. So just, you know, you, get through it and you, know, you got to carry on for the good of the nation. And that really shaped modern, modern grieving. Um, but it didn't shape the fact that grieving is still painful and difficult. And so when people started looking at it again, uh, Kubler-Roth, um, he studied people who were actually dying and came up with her, uh, the five stages of grief, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then ultimately acceptance. Um, <laughs> And everyone was like, oh, my gosh, that makes so much sense. This is, this is what people go through. And, you know, you, you can go through that. And then, you know, six months later, you should be fine. You just go through, you have to go through each of your stages. And it's and so all these misconceptions that came up around the, the stages of, of grief. And now we're finally starting to get, and, and through the roster, she was finally come out and said, she's like, you know, when I wrote this, you know, the stages of grief, they were for people who were actually, they were dying. And so the final stage is acceptance you accept the fate of, you know, that, that you're dying. And there's, there's a level of peace that comes over you. But for those of us who aren't dying, the, the model, it ends with, you accept that this is what's going on. This is, this is now what's happened. It's not, okay, get out of bed and, you know, try again now. Um, that's, that there's a, a sixth stage of, of grief that is actually, you know, get up and carry on, you know, uh, you know, try, try again now. Right. Um, and that's, and that hasn't been, that's probably starting to gain some, some acceptance. Also, the fact that the, the grief model, the traditional Kubler-Ross grief model, is not linear. It's not you do one and then the other. Very often, you bounce around between the different things and get to visit them multiple times. Um, and uh, trying to, you know, people are starting to finally understand that. And the society hasn't necessarily come around to that yet. There's still this expectation that you go through stages of grief and you should be over it within six months or so. Um, unfortunately, what most people don't understand is that year two is actually harder than year one for most people. Yes. Uh, because now you're you're revisiting like oh a year ago was the first anniversary of this happening, and God, like now I've actually had to, you know, I, this is what I was feeling like a year ago, and, and you know, it's um, year year two can be really daunting for people, but 
society doesn't, doesn't accept or expect the fact that, you know, when you're at work, you, you don't expect that, you know, your coworker in year two is going to be still having some low days. I mean, it may not be every day. Like there's the, the, the act of grief that you go through where after someone dies where you, you're pretty much not functional. You're in shock. Uh, but then when you get out of that, and that's what we, what we talk about in the life reentry models. Once you get out of the active grief, then you're in kind of that waiting room where you're kind of figuring things out. The waiting room can take a year or two uh, for people, especially if they're stuck and they don't have someone helping them, encouraging them through it, and they don't have the in, initiative on their own to, to, to get through it. Uh, very often, you know, you need to hit your low point. You need to break before you're ready to uh, finally accept that, this, this is happening and, and a change needs to happen. And for a lot of people, they're able to sustain just above breaking point. Um, so they really are stuck. And, and you know, the, the, the life reentry model is, is encouraged to try to help you. you know, hopefully you don't have to get down to that breaking point, uh, but we can start to demonstrate to you how, how to carry on and live in that new life and really start, start thriving. And that's really the, the last stage of, of grief is five, you know, have post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic loss. That's wonderful. Could you tell us about your uplifting story about that widowed man who became the inspiration for your work? Sure, yeah. Um, so there is, um, and I, I think you, you mentioned earlier, I think in the introduction, that I have this um, support group that I run for widowers. I love and, that, by the way. <laughs> and uh, there was a, a guy who was in my group who um, he, I, I know that I noticed that he, he stopped coming to group. When he was at group, he wouldn't talk very often. And when he would, he would really kind of crack up and, and cry. Eventually, he was able to share a little bit, but um, he didn't share a whole lot. And then he would just kind of, he, he eventually stopped coming. And But I would see him, we would have some social gatherings, and he would come to some of the social gatherings that we had as, as uh, the you know, the widows and widows would get together and have a potluck or something like that. Um, and as I was talking with him, he kind of said, he's like, you know, Brian, I, I don't like being around people who don't get it. Um, which is why he comes to, to the potlucks because all of his friends, he, he feels at least that his friends expect him to be over it. His friends expect him to be better. Um, they don't understand his grief and he feels judged by it. Um, especially as a man, uh, you're, it's, you know, it's so expected in, in, in the culture that you just kind of, you know, buck up and, and carry on. There's, um, uh, Brene Brown, uh, she talks about how women have this kind of web of expectations that they're supposed to be, you know, be pretty, but not too attractive, be strong, be, you know, confident, but not too strong. And women have, have all these, these, this matrix is supposed to try to fit into for men. It's just one box, be strong. And yeah. it's, it's, you know, don't be vulnerable. Don't be, you know, but, but women, you know, there's people say they want you to be vulnerable, but if you actually are vulnerable, then they get turned off or scared by it. And, and so we, you know, he was really like, I'm supposed to be strong. These people, they, they, they expect me to be this way and I'm not, and I, I can't be, so I just don't like to be with them. Um, but at the same time, he didn't like having to go to group where he had to talk about it. He, he didn't want to have to talk about it, but he didn't want to, because he, he, he wanted to be strong and he didn't want to revisit those feelings. But at the same time, he didn't want to like, um, to, to really show people that he, or for people to see that he really wasn't as strong as he felt he should be. Right. Um, and so. It was about removing his mask, but how do you get that? Exactly. And he felt, he also, he felt so, um, he felt very weak and unique in that. 
And so as I started working with him and, and talking with him about this, um, I, you know, describing the, the waiting room and the survivor and the thriver, um, he really, he got, he's like, oh, that's, that's me. He's like, clearly I'm in the waiting room. This is what's going on. And he really started to, to get it and, and see that he wasn't, what, what, he, what, was, what he was going through wasn't unique to him at all. And, and wasn't, um, there wasn't anything wrong with it. It was completely natural. Uh, it's kind of, it's what we go through when we, when we grieve, but that there are things that we can do to step out. Um, and he, he didn't end up coming on as a, as a client, but it was just because he was a friend of mine, someone who I just, I worked with a lot, almost as like a kind of a guinea pig. Um, he ended up being, like, he became the inspiration for me doing the widowers group because we, it was the, the idea that I came up with was, um, to get men to get together and potentially talk about it, but also, um, to kind of fit that gap between not having to talk about it but not be around people who don't get it. I was right. like, well, the best thing, how do we solve that? It's like, well, we get, we get a bunch of widowers together in a social gathering and we don't have to talk about it. Um, and so it's, it's, it's in, inevitably because we're a room full of widowers, it comes up. Um, and, but there also now also becomes a, a sort of ownership and protection in it where, you know, we, we have a new guy come in who's about six months uh, out from his, his spouse dying and, we, you know, it's like, oh boy, yeah, we, I, you know, I remember when I was at six months and, you know, this is what, you know, like, oh, you wait till year two comes around and, you know, you know, what are you doing for your anniversary? And, you know, it, you, you start, you kind of take the younger guys under your wing. Um, and also, you know, I'm the senior guy in the group. I've been, I'm now four and a half years out and there are guys who are in their sixties who I'm helping, you know, along it, like the, the roles are completely turned up on their head, but, you know, it's it's so you don't have to sit sit down and say, Hi, my name is Brian. I lost my wife to cancer four years ago and this is how my week was. Um, there's there's that that clinical feeling is, is gone and um and so he um he became my inspiration for doing that. And he's come to a number a number of the the, the gatherings. In fact it's one of the things that he, he looks forward to and, and since then, since he and I were kind of talking and, and kind of doing some, some faux life reentry work. Um, he, uh, he's now since he went from secluding himself in his house to he's gone on two international trips to visit people that he is kind of casual, casual friends with overseas and, uh, just really started stepping out and, and starting to enjoy life in a way that he didn't think was, was possible at this point. Um, and so it's, it's been, yeah, it's been great. That's a great story. Which leads me to the fact that you see grief not as a process of indefinite mourning and weakness, but as a strength, a superpower, a DNA upgrade, no less. This is like a surprising, life-changing concept. Could you explain, including how this dramatic change in attitude affected you? Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it, it really is. It's. It's. It is. It, it can become a superpower for so many people because you get to. And once you, for me, especially, but, and I've, I've seen this in both people that I work with and also some of my, my colleagues and, and kind of fellow widows and widowers is when I, I was at a point where I, the world was like, I, I don't want to say I didn't see the point in, in continuing on or living. I mean, I wasn't to the point of being suicidal, but I was like, I, I, I was like, well, I got to ride this out now. This is my kids, but now, you know, now what, you know, this is, 
it, it was kind of um, the, you know, the the weeks felt longer than the days. It was it was just so um, the days felt longer than the weeks. It was it was tough. And um, when I finally really started to get the the ideas of impermanence and and presence and really just kind of being you know living in the moment and not being bogged down by um, I mean, the, the number of futures that I've had kind of disappear from my from my life. You know, if if, if I think back to you know my, my first marriage and, and I've got a fantastic relationship with my first wife and we uh, we parented our kids great, but like when when we were going through our separation, that was uh, it was traumatic and life ending for me. Like this, gosh, I was supposed to. My parents have been married for you know fifty years and you know they're they, you know they're inseparable and like that's like I don't have that so now you know what, what am I going to do I can't if I'm not going to have that life anymore and it, and it, it weighed me down and it was traumatic until I met my next wife and and then she like she was just everything that was everything to me it was everything that I even know was even possible showed up for me in that and then she died and I was just like God now what and it's you know now like I clearly I can never do better than I did then and then I finally got that. And that's not what it's all about. Like, like uh, I now am in a, a fantastic relationship with a woman that I've been seeing for the past year, and it's the only reason that that relationship is possible is because of who I am now. And I I realize that it's not it doesn't make my relationship with my uh, wife who died any better or worse because when I was with my wife, I wasn't a widow. Um, so I'm, there's no You're way right. it's, it's, it's not possible for me to be now. the same person. Exactly. Yep entirely an entirely different person and it doesn't it doesn't mean that i i'm great glad that that happened uh because i i was when i was that person that was exactly everything that i needed at that point in my life and now that i'm who i am now this is exactly this is this is great for where i am now and it's it's once i started to really accept that it's not about carrying around who i was or who i thought i was supposed to be in fact if i lived entirely by who i believed i was supposed to be i would be so held back in my life uh by those preconceptions and it's it's made me really um i wouldn't say i'm I'm quite fully impervious yet but when things do knock me down they don't last anywhere near as long as as they could have because i kind of i just get like all right this is you know that was what that was now that sucked that really hurt but now it's time to, to go on and do something else and i i and it, it, that's really kind of become a superpower because it makes me almost impervious to anything that anyone could say or do to me because it's and and my empathy, like the way I see people and see the world now, is I I remember the first time I was standing on a street corner and I saw an ambulance go by and I had a flashback to the last ambulance ride to the hospital with my wife and I don't know how long I was sitting in that corner but I, I'm sure I I probably was mumbling to myself and I was probably tearing up. And I'm in the middle of, you know, city street. And it often, the next time I saw like a homeless person kind of walking around mumbling instead of kind of getting a kind of like, ugh. but you know, my, my first thought was, God, I wonder what happened to them. And I, and I was like, wow, like that's like the way I see the world has completely shifted now. Um, because, because of, of what I've gone through and I chose to grow out of it rather than to be kind of beaten into a hole out of it. And that, and that is, that's kind of like, you know, when you, when you learn about, you talk about your heartbreaking, there's two things that can happen. It can break and stop functioning and, or it can break open and more can come out of it. Um, and those are really, 
pretty much the only real two paths that you can go when you have a traumatic event like that, when your heart breaks, it's do I, does it break open and I continue on with more now or does it break down? Um, and it's really up to you how, how, whether or not you can do that. And when you break open, you really, it's, there's so much more that comes out of you. It's, it's like a superpower. That is really fantastic. Um, and you yourself, you've experienced like different types of losses. So you're an incredible role model for people because you've experienced divorce. You've just experienced death. You've, you've made trans, you know, changes in your career and all of that kind of thing. You're, you're a tremendous font of information um, for people. Do you have a message about the importance of healing, which I guess we've been talking about all the way around, that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, I mean, the I mean, healing is, it, I guess to kind of uh, echo what I was saying, is it's uh, the... When you you can choose to heal, or you can or you can, or you can choose to stay um, hurt and broken. And when you when you heal, you really start to find that you're stronger in the broken places. Mm. Um, and it it can be um, it can be such a life a, a traumatic event can be so so life changing and debilitating when it when it happens because your your presumed future. Um, evaporates from from before you and that and that was really one of the big empathetic awakenings that i had was that you know it really doesn't matter if it's you know uh a, de- a do- death death loss or a job loss or a marriage loss or a debt loss it's anything that you 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 anticipate to have in front of your life uh when it disappears from your presumed future it's that you grieve that um and it can be hard to get through that and over that but when you when you heal in those broken places it's almost like there's a i've seen memes about this online there there's, uh i think it's in japan when a vase cracks uh, or breaks when they they don't try to fix it and make it um look like it used to because you know in the way there's no way you're always going to see the crack so instead of trying to fix it they pour gold in the cracks and now the cracks shine and they become a new feature of this new vase oh, wow. that is now beautiful in its in this new way. Um, and that's really that's really what healing does is you can you you're you you get stronger in the in the, the places where you broke and you really can um, I thought that I almost now uh, I some of my video humor or something that has become really uh, we've become very comfortable with uh, with my widow friends and a lot of us uh, we kind of joke that you know for people who haven't been widowed, they can't like when we enter our, our widow humor, it's, it's really not cool for them because they, they can't quite get it. Um, but one of the things we kind of joke about is, you know, we almost feel sorry for people who haven't gone through such a traumatic loss because they don't know what they're capable of um, until you go through something significant enough. And, you know, it's like you can't, some of the things you, you, you can't necessarily teach people, you know, how to really embrace living after and you know unless you've gone through something that really makes you see the value of 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 life and it's you know it's one of those catch 22s you know you you, some of these things you almost can't experience until you've gone through something that breaks you hard enough but you really but so so healing is almost um it it's really the only way to become super 
That's great. That's that's a wonderful analogy, Brian. How do our listeners connect with you? And you have a special offer for them? Yeah. So um, if you um, go to my my website is um, I try to keep uh, simple. It's uh, brianhartsman.com. Let's spell um, that and, well, yeah, I mean, Fortunately, it's, it's an anglicized version of a, of a German name. So it's, okay. uh, my first name is Brian with an I, B-R-I-A-N. And then last name is Hartzman, H-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N. Um, all one word, brianhartzman.com is, is my site. And um, you can contact me there. Uh, there are, there's a, a place where you can sign up for, for a session with me directly on the site. Uh, but you can also, most people actually end up just contacting me. We arrange it independently. But um, I do a, a free introductory session for, for people. Because really, when you're working with someone, something so intimate, um, as your, your grief and your loss and areas where you might be feeling stuck in your life, it's important that you feel comfortable with the person. And so I do a, a free introductory session to really kind of tell you more about me and who I am and how I work and kind of get a feel for my personality, right. learn a little bit more about what you're struggling with. And then, um, what we can do, whether it's, you know, a, uh, a, a more, detail-oriented life reentry plan or is it just more um you know kind of general grief coaching or if you need you know for death dual services um and different aspects of what that might look like we can talk about all those things and uh, kind of see see what's comfortable that's great because a person could call you and say like i am i i can't move forward i'm really stuck i don't think there's any solution for me and challenge you all right if i go with you how could you help me with this? And you can show them that you can and that they can move forward. Yeah. It's possible. Ryan, what's your tip for finding joy in life? Um, I say I think my, my biggest tip that I, um, I usually tell most people is, is that it's not about you. Um, and when you, if you can really embody that concept that it's, it's not about you when, especially when you're dealing with, with people and with other people, and other things in life, it really makes um, life so much more enjoyable and easy. Because when you realize that if you're dealing with someone, you know, and they're they're mad at you, or they're they're yelling at you, or they're ignoring you, chances are it has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has to do with something that that they're going through. Um, so I mean, or, or or it's just you know, if it's if it's a relationship, you know, it could be tied to their past, or if it's a you know um, person at the counter you know, that when you're trying to buy something is not being helpful or whatever, it's, it's you know, it, they showed up that day that way or the things that happened in their life have brought them to that point. And once you start to really get that, it's, it's not about you. The way they're acting is not because of you. It's because of, of them. It releases this burden of taking ownership for other people's problems in their lives. And all of a sudden now you're at the very least, you it, it doesn't weigh on you anymore and so you now it opened up to to being more happy with it because now that won't weigh you down for us like that person did this to me it's so it's done because it, it it was never about you in the first place right. and then right. now you can actually that's that's the bare minimum but then you can actually start to you know start to feel compassion for these people and once you start having adding compassion and authenticity in your life like that joy just starts showing up everywhere um and at its at its basic that's you know it, once you start 
really taking it on and, and asking yourself that or reminding yourself that, oh, you know, boy, they really ticked me off that person did that. Oh, well, you know what? It probably wasn't about me. It was probably, they had this going on. And all of a sudden it's gone. And now you can start seeing joy in places where you haven't seen it before. And, That's um, tremendous. It's kind of like the, the, it's a gateway drug. Yeah. It kind of takes you from being a victim to, uh, yeah, and take exactly. it personally to say, okay, that's their stuff, but I can continue to do go on do my thing. That is that is great. Yeah. Well, I don't want to end this interview, but we must. <laughs> so I just love that you are providing an important shift in attitude for those who are ready, helping them to work through their losses and find peace in their new world following loss. I have to say, I myself worked with a life transition coach after my husband died, and it changed my life in so many positive ways. So I know that you're doing that for many people. And I have no doubt that there are people in our listening audience who are greatly resonating with this interview and will want to find out more about the help you can give them and their loved ones to reenter their lives in a new way after loss. Thank you, Brian, for the wonderful work you do to help people heal and move forward from all of our hearts. And everyone, here's a reminder to please be sure to like Irene Weinberg, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you. And as I like to say, surely to be continued. Bye. Thank you, Irene. Thank you.